Some among us are too young to remember some of those scenes we just saw, those pictures. But for most of us, that brings back some pretty uh, raw emotions, uh, even 10 years down the line. And uh, that was a bad day. You say every day is a good day because God is good all the time, but that was a, that was a bad day. And God is sovereign, and we can praise Him, and He can make even the worst day good. That's our hope in Christ, that He works all things together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. You know, in light of that, I've, I've um, been thinking a lot about how we all want our lives to make a difference. We all want something of significance to come out of our life and, you know, not to live for nothing, not to live in vain. And um, what happens uh, is that things get in the way of us making a full impact a lot of the times. Life gets in the way. And um, I found that it's often due to our perception of reality that gets a bit tweaked. Um, As we all know, we're all prone to do this, but some deny the truth. And some get really confused about it, and others are just um, fearful of it. And uh, with, the, with today being the 10th anniversary of 9-11, we do, we do kind of come to, to these ideas and thoughts and emotions. And um, what I've seen, and I'm sure you've seen it too, is that a lot of people recently... Um, coming up to this day today have been anxious I mean I'll be honest with you I woke up today and I said we're still here and I, I'm, I'm, I'm you know I, I think a lot of things and many people have been anxious and fearful and confused even regarding uh, this day coming and um, you know uh, in, in everything in life the known and the unknown kind of mix in our minds and uh, create some interesting things but you add all that into the daily pressures and stresses of just living where we live. And, and it's easy to get off track and in desperation or crisis mode. It's easy to, to be in a, a mode of life where you're like, ah, things are spinning so fast I, I, can't, uh, I, can't, uh, I can't make heads or tails of it. Um, let's go back to the biblical world. Uh, 50 years or so after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. In a place called Corinth, a strategic, wealthy, influential city about 50 miles from Athens. And in that place was the church, a gathering and, and living amongst the people of Corinth. And, and the church was made up of many new believers, many of whom had come from pagan backgrounds. So they're sifting through all of that. Others were sifting through their, their Jewish background and trying to figure out how the gospel fits with all of that. And they were in crisis mode. The church in Corinth, when Paul wrote was in crisis mode. They were, they were experiencing many problems as it related to the living of the Christian life. There were marriage problems. There were um, disagreements regarding matters of conscience. 
There were divisions inside the church as people uh, wanted to, to follow certain leaders and lift them up over other leaders. Uh, there was an abuse of the Lord's Supper. We're, we're going to celebrate the bread and cup this morning. There was an abuse of the Lord's Supper. And, and there was an abuse of worship assemblies. And what was going on in that setting. There was confusion about the role of women in the church. There was also false teaching about the afterlife. These and more were going on in Corinth. So there were divisions. There was also blatant sin kind of just being left to kind of fester and mess up the church. And Paul receives news of this situation and he addresses it very, very firmly. And he writes to them to admonish them, to encourage them, and to, to redirect them to what was truly important. And, and he was pointing them to what they needed. And what they needed is what we also need as we live today. And, and it's, it, they needed direction and encouragement and, and perspective. And that's what the, um, we're looking at one verse today. We're, we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. And what this verse answers is what difference the resurrection of Christ and believers' future resurrection ought to make in our lives. So open your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and please stand with me to read God's Word. Again, one verse we'll read. I think you could say that 1 Corinthians chapter 15 may be one of the most significant chapters in all of the Bible, as well as one of the most uh, misunderstood. But this verse reads this way, as the Spirit had Paul write, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today and we, we do want to make a difference in our lives and we do know that, that life gets in the way and even things as big as 9-11. And Lord, we confess to you that we have been and get anxious and fearful and confused and even tempted to deny what your word says or ignore what you have said. Lord, we pray that you would uh, wipe away the fog that maybe has cluttered some of our, our perspectives and, and let us see clearly the glories of Christ. Let us see clearly what you want from us. Lord, we're here and we know you are too and, and we pray that you would have your way with us right now. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. It contains the big therefore. A lot of people like to make nicknames for people, and I remember Shaquille O'Neal always liked to give names to himself. It was always the big something, or the great something. Well, this verse is the great therefore. It, it, it begins, therefore. And you've always got to ask, why is it therefore? What is it therefore? Why is this verse here, and why is it starting with that word that is attaching it to something? 
So always, when, when the word therefore is there, you always want to go immediate. Right there in the context. What was just said? And then you want to go a bit further back and say what was just said before what was just said. And then you want to go back to the, the whole context of the book and say what is being said. So we've got this big therefore, the great therefore, and it is based primarily on chapter 15. And it, and it addresses things like this. And let's, we'll take a kind of a, a walking start on this and we'll start at 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1. Paul is reminding them of the gospel that he had preached to them in which they, they had received and in which they stand. It means they were living in it. They were, they were, um, live, uh, they were held by it. They were, firm in, they were to be firm in it. And it says that by that gospel you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. You'll notice that there are bookends in this chapter. In vain, that, that phrase is in the second verse as well as the last verse of the chapter. But he talks about how he has delivered this, this fundamental hope to Christians called the gospel. And it includes the cross and the burial of Christ and the resurrection and the hope of his return. When we celebrate the bread and the cup, we're, we remember the words that Paul said. As often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You're preaching the gospel until he comes. And so, the resurrection of Christ is the starting point of our understanding of our hope in Christ. You see that in the first 11 verses. It moves on and, and it, it doesn't change topics. It just goes deeper that Christ's resurrection and that of his people go hand in hand because of their union with him. And it's hard for us to get our minds around that, but there were people in that church that were denying that Christians would someday be resurrected. They said, oh, well, we can't deny that Jesus was risen from the dead because that's a, a, a proven fact. But no, we're not going to rise from the dead. That's what a lot of people would say. They said the de- that the, the grave was all there was. And then we see the, the facts that Christ rose, verses 20 to 28. Um, and then that we will rise, verses 29 to 34. And then in verses 35 to 50, there's more details about resurrection bodies that are related to our physical bodies but different from them and we see in in verses 51 and 57 that it's this is all going to happen at the second coming of christ and and really the last three verses before our verse for today where it says in verse in verse 55 oh death where is your uh, death is swallowed up in victory oh death where is your victory Oh, death, where is your sting? Death is being, is being uh, personified here and addressed and basically mocked. Where is your victory, O oh death? Where is your sting? Because Christ is risen from the dead and all those who belong to Christ will rise as well. So the victory of death is gone. The sting of death is gone. Verse 56 tells us the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But... Verse 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. The victory has been transferred away from death and to those who have eternal life. It's good news for Christians. This is good news in light of 9-11 type things that happen. See, people fear death. And they get confused about the details. They deny what the Bible says sometimes as a result. Some say it ends all it ends in the grave, with the grave, at the grave. But not for Christians. For Christians, the fear of death is eliminated in the resurrection of Christ. By the assurance of our bodily resurrection one day. See, we will go to the grave and one day come out glorified in new bodies fit for heaven. You don't understand it, but the Bible says that will happen. Benjamin Franklin wrote his own epitaph. It's on his grave. And here's what it says. The body of Franklin, printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here food for the worms. But the work will not be lost, for it will appear once more in a new and more elegant edition, revised and corrected by the author. Over the grave of Queen Victoria and her husband are the words, Here at last I will rest with thee and with thee in Christ. I shall also rise again. That's true for Christians. That's the hope that we have. And because of that hope, Paul says, Therefore, therefore, my beloved brethren. You've got to watch out for Paul. Whenever he says, my beloved brethren, something big is coming next. I knew a pastor that uh, he had key words for his staff, and when he used a certain word, you knew you were in trouble. My beloved brethren is kind of like that. My beloved brethren, beloved, dearly loved, cherished, close, dear. Brethren, family, the household of God, linked, committed, accountable. But a biggie's coming. Therefore, my beloved brethren, since the facts about Christ's resurrection and ours are there, if we're going to throw ourselves wholeheartedly in the work, if we know that God will use our efforts in eternally significant ways, then we had better respond in ways that correspond with that truth. And what he's going to say next requires both God's presence and enabling, as well as our cooperation and action and effort. And we may struggle with fear or confusion or even denial. But the resurrection provides us firm footing, not shaky ground. Here's the point of these verses. Christians, and it's for Christians. If you're not a Christian, this is not about you. If you become a Christian, it's about you. If you believe in Jesus and are saved, this is about you. That Christians can confidently pour themselves into God's work. Why? Because God's work in and through them is eternally significant. 
That's what Paul's saying. And what he's pointing out are three main ways the resurrection of Christ and of believers ought to affect our lives. The first thing, the first reason the resurrection ought to ought to affect our lives it's it's what we see is that the the resurrection is the basis for something it is the basis for our confident standing in christ you might want to write that down our confident standing in christ that christians can confidently move we don't have to be fearful we don't have to be wishy-washy we don't have to deny what the bible says because paul says be steadfast and immovable those are big words Steadfast. It's an adjective and it means to sit. Most of you are sitting right now. Someone was just walking, so I had to say that, but you're all sitting right now. And and it means to take your seat, to be fixed, to, to be settled, to be firm, to be solid where you're sitting. It means to persevere and not give up and persist in a course of action. Immovable is, is a, a similar kind of word, and it means to be, you're going to love this, immovable means to be unmoved. It's kind of self This verse preaches itself. Be steadfast and immovable. Sit and firm in your place and remain unmoved. Now, some people will take that and say, well, I'm not going to do anything then. It's <laughs> not what this is talking about. This is talking about being not moving. Okay, now it means to not move at all. The idea is to be firmly rooted and grounded in Christ, as Colossians 2 says. Look at Colossians 1 and verse 23. Colossians, uh, verse, Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 21. Paul says, You were once alienated. You were once hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now, he's speaking to believers about their former life, and he says, you were like this before, but now he has reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. This is a... This is the requirement. This is what God wants. This is based on the resurrection. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel. There's a great picture there of being steadfast and immovable. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel. You can change your seats if you want right now. But you cannot change your seat in Christ around the hope of the gospel. Be steadfast and immovable. Now, the contrast to this would be in Ephesians 4 and verse 14, which talks about no longer being tossed about by every wind and wave of doctrine. We don't live that far from the beach. Many of you have gone to the beach. You know what it's like to be tossed in the waves. You'd be out there and your feet aren't on the ground anymore and waves are moving you and you can't do anything about it. But you also know what it's like to stand on a rock in the ocean. And the waves can move around you and the tide can come in and go back out and it doesn't take you with it because you're standing firm. 
I don't know, some people, they have a new theology every time you see them. Some people, they have a new idea, a new system of thought, uh, new things that they've been, they've been moved around by every time you get together. You've got to settle in your mind that the resurrection of Christ is a reality and then stay put. Not move from your hope in Christ. Find your strength in Christ, not your activities or your ministry or your pet ideas or your doctrines or your systems of thought. Stay put. It's the idea of abiding. Abiding in Christ. I I get the picture of being dependent on and stubbornly loyal to Christ. You know what it's like to be stubbornly loyal to someone. Anyone says anything about them, you're all over them. You do that for your wife, right, men? Someone says something about your wife, those are fighting words. Kid, uh, moms, if someone says something about your kids, mama bear comes up, right? Comes out. Fiercely loyal, stubbornly loyal to Christ. What's our problem? Why is Paul saying, beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable. It's not like, hey, let's, let's give a big hug. Okay? They were messed up. He wasn't giving them a big hug yet. He was saying, you aren't. And you need to be. I'm stubbornly loyal to myself. You're stubbornly loyal to yourself. You stick up for yourself. You make sure your point gets across. You make sure that you're heard. Paul's saying, hear Jesus. Don't be sinfully stubborn, but be biblically immovable. And those who are stubbornly loyal to Christ will just die to selfish ambition. They won't try to control others in Christ's church. The steadfast and movable Christian is not stuck in the mud. The steadfast and movable Christian won't hold everything up due to their stubbornness. They, won't, they will be confident in Christ. They will be, as Ephesians 6.10 says, strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. They'll work with other people. They'll be willing to even yield their own opinions. And they don't care whose name goes on the plaque when it gets put up. Good thing we don't put a lot of those up, huh? There are people that have given much and paid dearly and invested heavily and bought a lot of churches there, whatever. But think about this. You've got to get over that. Write that one off because you're not the head of the church, right? Jesus Christ, who purchased the church with his own blood. They're the head of the church. In Corinth, there were all sorts of fights about who was more important. If we waver on the doctrine of the resurrection, by the way, we're going to be tempted to adopt the mindset of the world and the standards of the world. And the idea is, well, if there's no eternal consequences, then then why do anything of eternal significance? What Paul's saying is there are eternal consequences, and we ought to do things of eternal significance. So stand firm. Verse 58, um, be steadfast and immovable. You go back to verse 2. Go back to verse 2. And... Hold fast to the word. That's part of being steadfast and immovable. Hold fast, Paul says, to the word I preach to you. Unless you believed in vain. So the first thing is that the, cro- the resurrection is the basis for our confident standing in Christ. Second thing this passage shows us is that the resurrection is the basis for our full engagement in Christ's work. Paul says, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord. You can pour all your energy into God's work. Here's why. Well, first we're going to live forever. And there's an eternal kingdom. And only treasure in heaven matters. And so we got to be working for that kingdom. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, of the master, of, of our authority. And by the way, always means always, not just when it's convenient. At all times, abounding. It's not a word we use very often, is it? Abounding. What does that mean? Abounding means to be over and above. It means to have something in abundance. It means to be much more. It means to do more. It means to be overabundant in what you do. It basically means to overdo it. The idea here that Paul's saying is overdo it to overcome something else. They need to always be abounding in the work of the Lord because they hadn't been. They're abounding in their own works. They're all infighting and getting all messed up about all these things. And Paul says, no, you're to be abounding in the Lord's work always. Always more. By the way, it's the same word that's used in Romans 5 and verse 20. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. More grace. More sin? Well, more grace. Grace is greater than all of our sin. It's the same word that we find in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. In him we have redemption through his blood, Christ's blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. That word lavished, same word that's translated abounding. So that's a good word to think of. Another word we don't use very often, but lavish. A lavish feast, uh, uh, just a, a lot more than enough. Way more. He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight when he made known to us the mystery of his will according to the kind intention which he purposed in Christ. See, when God was gracious to us, he overdid it. He gave way more. Everything's covered. Super abounded in all wisdom and knowledge and grace. And he wants you to superabound in service. In service. Now some people will say, but I have given so much. It's time for me to balance it out and do something for me. It's, and what they do is they indulge themselves out of kingdom significance. They indulge themselves out of kingdom work. They get so wrapped up in their thing, they miss God's thing. And by the way... If I'm complaining, I'm not abounding. I'm, abound, I'm not abounding in the Lord's work if I'm complaining. I'm abounding in my own deal. Here's what John Piper said. No matter how hard you work to achieve anything, its achievement and the fulfilling enjoyment of it depends decisively on God. If we do not trust in God with all our heart, but in, instead rely on our own insight, then we might, if he wills, produce a monument, but in the end it will only be a monument to futility. Engage in the work of the Lord. The question we've got to ask ourselves is, what's the work of the Lord? What is the work? See, we all have this idea in our head of what the work of the Lord is. And some of the things we think is the work of the Lord isn't. And some of the things that we say aren't the work of the Lord are. 
We, we, we go in our heads and we say, this is the work of the Lord. Well, what does the Bible say the work of the Lord is? The work of the Lord is any good thing that God wants you to do. That's the work of the Lord. That's the work that you should always be abounding in. I was really excited yesterday because of the, the BBB, the Triple B, the Bonanza and all that. Because of one thing. I observed you engaging people with the love of God. Uh, it was awesome. It was awesome. Overjoyed. Um, people came to Jesus, in John chapter 6. People came to Jesus. They asked him the question, what, what, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And interestingly, his answer is pretty much a corrective to them. They said, we want to know what to do to be doing the works of God. Well, here's the problem with that. The works of God is what God does. Here's what he said in in John chapter 6, verse 29. He answered them. This is the work of God. Not the works of God. The works of God is what God does. But the work of God is what God requires of his people. What he wants his people to do. What he's going to enable his people to do. And so Jesus says the work of God that you, is to, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So you keep on believing and you keep on living in Christ and abiding in Christ and it's going to flow out of you. You will be engaged in the work of God. In the work of the Lord. We know, according to Philippians 2.13, that God is at work in believers to will and do. He's working. He's enabling. He's empowering. He's affecting what happens by His power, using people. We're to, we're to do anything good that God wants us to do. And you, then the next question is, where do I find that? I got, a, I got a good answer for you right here in the Bible you can find all the good things God wants you to do right here right here in this book just start at the beginning and keep going you won't have to look outside the book because your life will probably you'll be with Jesus by the time you get somewhere not to the end yet you, you won't exhaust all the good things God wants you to do you just go through the book don't be looking at outside the book for what God wants you to do in the generals, the specifics, of course. You're not going to find out who you're supposed to marry, where you're supposed to go to school, where you're going to work, all that. But you will find the, the general thing of the good thing you're supposed to do right here in the Word. That'll lead to the specifics. Now, um, let's uh, talk about one other aspect of, of engaging in the work. And um, it's... it's um, it's the idea that's really, it's, it's, it's in the context here, but it's not named in this verse. It's really rooted in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. So go there with me, 1 Corinthians 4. And it, what it is, is the hardship and pain of those who engage in the Lord's work. What the hardship and pain that those engage in the Lord's work is going to endure. Okay, so if you want to always abound in the work of the Lord, you will, in, you will have pain and hardship. Um, you go back to the idea of 9-11 and what happened there. A lot of pain and loss and a lot of hardship and you know there have been there's there's so many people that in the aftermath of that are still working through all of that 
I'm sure some are getting way too fixated on certain things, but for the general population, it's just they're appropriately working through it. Now, 1 Corinthians 4, Paul talks about being a servant of God. A servant of God. And he talks about how we're, in verse 1, they're to be regarded as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. It's required that they be found trustworthy. Um, Verse 10, he says that... um, Verse 9, I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we become a spectacle to the world. We're fools for Christ's sake. We're weak. And, and he's, he's basically being somewhat uh, sarcastic here. We're fools, you're, you're wise. We're weak, you're strong. You're held in honor, we're in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed. And he's saying, you need to be like us. He tells them at the, at, the, uh, at the end, you need to imitate me. I urge you, verse 16, be imitators of me. You're going to go through this. You're going to get gold tested by fire and trial and persecution, and you're going to become more useful. Then you'll be able to fully engage in Christ's work even more. I think back to the great Yellowstone fire in 1988. The seeds of rebirth, of regrowing the, the forests were, and repopulate the forest came out, many of them in the fire. Many of the pine cones, uh, the, the seeds embedded there would only come out under intense heat. So the fire was actually what brought out the, the, the hope of new birth. And, and the same is true for Christians in our lives that substance and new growth is rarely seen under easy circumstances we see progress after the most intense situations Romans 15 verse 13 says may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope abound 2 Corinthians 9, 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in everything, you may abound in every good work. God will give you what you need and he'll take you through that fire. Last thing, number three, third thing we see that the resurrection is the basis for in, in terms of our life in Christ. It is the basis for our assurance in Christ. Our assurance because God's work in and through believers is eternally significant, we can move. Think about the last part of this verse. It starts with steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. To labor here means to, to strike, to cut, even to mourn, to travail. It means to go through trouble and disturbance, uneasiness. It's, it's the weariness that comes from exerting a lot of energy. Paul said in verse 10, I labored more than all the other apostles. What's done as an outflow of the life of Christ in a person um, is, is this labor. Work to the point of perspiration and exhaustion so hard that you're weary. Like Paul said, he's willing to spend and be spent for the souls of others. Uh, Paul says here that that your labor is not in vain. There's a repeated term there, and it literally means without cause, to no purpose, empty, hollow, without success. 
When it's used of people, it indicates evil being present if it's in vain. How do you guarantee? You want to guarantee that your labor is in vain and amounts to nothing and has no effect? Then just refuse to believe. Refuse to believe. Focus on the temporary and the, uh, versus the eternal. Here's the deal. Our labor is in vain if the Lord is not in our labor. Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain. Who build it? It's vain for you to rise early and go to bed late and, and eat the bread of, of anxious toil. That's not the work of the Lord. Anxious toil is where you just get so wrapped up in what you're doing. He gives to his beloved in sleep. Verse 2 says, Psalm 127, verse 2. He gives to his beloved in sleep. God will give the trusting soul more uh, uh, substance through, through sleep than the person working with anxious toil. Isn't it interesting that God has, has put us together such that we spend about a third of our life sleeping? That's where we are most helpless. And the Bible says that God even gives to us as we sleep. You're exhausted, you can't move a muscle, and, and you don't know how you're going to make it in the next day, and, and you can say, Lord, uh, give me what I need as I sleep tonight. Trust Him for provision that you don't know you're going to even have the wherewithal to deal with internals and externals. And He will give that to you. Gordon Clark says, Therefore we should mortify emotion, be steadfast, unchangeable, not erratic and scatterbrained, easily discouraged, and should multiply our good works in the knowledge that the Lord will make them profitable. See, no matter how hard you work at anything, God is responsible to make it a success. It's his work. And he can accomplish more, again, through those who trust them, even when they're sleeping, than the person who is uh, involved in the anxious, eating the bread of anxious toil, which is not the work of the Lord. The key word in this verse is in the Lord. Key phrase. In Christ. It's a statement of fact. It's means you've been saved by grace through faith. It means you're believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so your labor, God at work in you to do and will and do his good pleasure, is not going to be in vain. 2 Corinthians 6.1, he says, Working together with God, we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Working together with God. Paul says, I labor and strive according to his power that is at work mightily in me. As we close, I'll just say this. Paul, I love how Paul ends chapter 15 with, with practicality. Very, very practical. Very, very, you can get your arms around it. Again, it preaches itself. Um, it's the great therefore. Now, 9-11. Let's go back to that for a moment. Here was the rallying cry. It's on signs all over the place. Banners. Never forget. Now, some people use that as a, as a way to try to get vengeance on people, Right? never going to forget what they did to us and it's always they us and them but uh take that aside for a moment and think about what first corinthians 15 57 is it is a rally cry that paul is giving to believers that goes far beyond anything that will ever happen here on earth what paul is saying is never forget christ's resurrection and your 
future resurrection. Let's pray. As I pray, the usher's going to come forward and we're going to be passing out the bread and the cup in just a moment. Lord, thank you that every good work that we do for, for you in this world has eternal implications. Lord, I, I, I really believe that this one verse might just be the, the jolt or the reminder or the jump start that some of us need to get going again in your work. Convinced of the truth of your resurrection, aware of what you have done on our behalf at the cross, and then boldly serving you. Knowing we're not perfect, but we can be examples to others. And thank you for our hope that benefits us, that affects us. And thank you for reminding us that nothing done in your name will be or can be in vain. Thank you, Lord, that we can live with eternal perspective based upon what you have done and what you will do. We thank you in Christ's name, amen.